Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Good morning, New Spring. So good to see you today. Let me explain the jersey I have on. <laughs> this is the third Going Pro series that I've done. The first one was in 2011, and then 2014, and now this one. And the Going Pro series, I'll explain a little more about this in a moment. It's, it's based on Proverbs. So it's a book about living a pro-life. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But back in 2011, I thought I'm going to have a little fun with this, and I'm going to wear an NFL jersey every week. And that was kind of interesting because we had some interesting things happen. Like, for instance, I remember there was a a, a guy who was an awesome guy. I mean, he's just the kind of guy that would give you the jersey off his back. I mean, he's a great businessman, and and, uh, but he was not yet a Christ follower and not really into church. And so friends had invited him to New Spring and said, the pastor's wearing a, an NFL jersey. And so based on that, he said, well, I'm going to go see a church where the pastor's wearing an NFL. I'd just like to see that. And he came and he gave his life to the Lord and just was an enormous witness and brought so many people to Christ. And I don't want to freak anybody out about what I'm about to tell you, but New Spring, I really believe, is an anointed church. And one of the things I've watched is God get people in the last year of their lives. So if you just came to New Spring, I hope I didn't freak you out. Uh, There's been so many stories. And so, you know, within a year he passed and, and, um, and had just been, I mean, he had accomplished more for the Lord in that one year than a lot of people accomplished in their whole lives. But I remember... Um, you know, just that wonderful story. And, and there are so many other stories about that. But so I, I just have worn NFL jerseys. Uh, we're having a little fun with the series. So let me explain the one that I have on, though, because you could look at it and you're like, I don't know, why is he wearing that jersey? Um, well, first of all, this was given to me uh, as a commemoration for our anniversary. And I came from, Miralis and I came from the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, back in 1985. And so if you look at the back of my jersey, it says New Spring. And for all of you cowboy fans here saying, who's number 85? Uh, It's the year that we came. (laughs) Now, I know some of you are already upset with me because you're like, I don't like Dallas Cowboy fans. (laughs) And and so I'd ask you to to just take two things into consideration. First of all, I came from that area, so just forgive me. And secondly, you should always have pity for people who are in pain. And I really would love to be delivered from being a Dallas Cowboy fan. I just go all the way back to the Landry Staubach years, and and I can't help myself. If there's a star on the hat, I have to watch. But these are painful times. And so I just want to understand why I'm wearing this jersey, and I will have better jerseys. Well, not better jerseys, but better teams as we go along here. It's good to be back. I've been gone for four weeks. And I have to tell you, it was planned for me to be gone for four weeks. Mary Alice and I don't take vacations. I don't like vacations. I'm like a caged panther when I take vacations because the job that I do is just narcotic. And and I don't like to be away. I love what I do. 
But I promised Mary Alice that we would take a vacation. There's some wonderful New Spring family who've been very, very good to Mary Alice and me. They have a beautiful home on an island in North Carolina, just right on the beach, and they've opened their home to us several times, and they had opened it to us this year. And so we just decided, we were looking forward to this vacation, and I told Mary Alice, I said, I'm really going to just detach. For once in my life, I'm just going to detach from everything and really focus on the vacation. And then then something else happened, and this is too much information, but um, there's a car shortage right now. And some of that's because of a chip shortage and, and just some of the things still related to COVID. And, but, you know, you can pass a car dealership and you'll notice that they don't have a lot of cars on the lot. Well, what it's really hit is it's hit rental car places because they too are vying for what few cars are available. And if you've ever tried to rent a car in the last few months, they're extremely expensive, especially if it's in a small to mid-sized market. So when Marilyn Snyder checked out rental cars, and I'll get to this in just a moment, I'll explain this because you're like, what did I come to hear this for? Um, in, in the Wilmington market where we were going to rent, the cars were just extraordinarily expensive. And I said to Mary Alice, babe, don't worry about it this year. You have a brand new van. And I said, you know, we haven't taken a road trip in years. So we've just really slowed down and taken our time. Now, for all of you who are ladies, you probably know a guy who's got this male accomplishment thing going. And it affects when he's driving because it's like... I don't like to slow, slowly go anywhere. I, if I'm driving, I want to get there. I want to accomplish. At the end of the day, I want to say I drove 800 miles today. And, uh, but, you know, Mary also said, but you didn't see anything. So it's sort, of, it's sort of like that. But I said, I'm going to do this differently this year. I said, you know, we're, just, we're not going to fly. We're just going to get in the van, and we're going to take our time, and we're going to see local sites and all that, and then we'll just work our way to Wilmington, North Carolina, and then we'll do the same thing on the way back. And so because of that, I set up to be gone for four weeks, which that almost never happens. Well, we did. We took off about a month ago, and uh, we took our time. I think we went to Columbia, Missouri the first day, but I noticed that over time, Mary Alice wasn't feeling very well. And then the further we went, the worse she felt. And so we wound up in Lexington, Kentucky one morning, and it was very clear that she wasn't feeling good. And finally, I just said, you know what we've got to do? We've just got to scrap this vacation and go home. And we drove all the way from Lexington, Kentucky to Andover, oh, I guess about three and a half weeks ago. And then she got sick and got worse, and then I got sick. And, and the weird thing about it was we took the time off, but not like we planned, <laughs> And we were, we were just kind of trying to get well, and thankfully we did. We did fine. We're both doing great. But then <laughs> the day before my birthday came, and Mary Alice, you know, she, when she was feeling bad, she wasn't eating a whole lot. And, but that particular day, she got hungry for something in particular. And you should understand that Mary Alice and I are high school sweethearts. We met when I was 16 and she was 14. So the first time we ever went out to eat together. I was 16. She was 14. Our, our school had an, an event. And across the street was this brand new high-end restaurant called Taco Bell. <laughs> this particular one was the first one in Tarrant County. So we walked across the street from the high school where our event was happening, and we went to Taco Bell. And you know what's weird? We're not 16 and 14 anymore, but we still order the same thing. <laughs> same order. I love going into a Taco Bell and talking to the kid behind the counter and say, you know, I remember when there were only five items and they were all 23 cents. That's what old people do. <laughs> Isn't that right? I'll be here young and want to tell you when I was a kid. It all... So Mary Ellis, you know, she was feeling a lot better and she said, 
I would just like to have a burrito from Taco Bell. I said, no problem. I'll just, you know, we live in Southeast Andover and we have a Taco Bell there. It's only like five minutes from our house. I said, I'll run down, I'll get it for you. So here I am on kind of a little country road that's not far from our subdivision. I'm just making my way along. And then all of a sudden I have this freak automobile accident. I have this little collision with a mowing tractor. And it knocks my car out of, out of, uh, out of control. And then it rolls over and flips in a ditch. And I'm lying in this car upside down and I can't get out for like 35 minutes. I'm waiting for the fire department to come get me out. And I'm lying in my car and I'm upside down and I'm thinking to myself, you know, somebody is going to ask me, what did you do on your summer vacation? (laughs) And I'm gonna tell them. (laughs) It strikes me that life works that way a lot. We have beautiful plans. But then the heartbreaks come and we watch our dreams melt in front of our face. Well, I was very blessed in that accident. I wasn't harmed. I wasn't in danger at all. My car was total, but I was fine. Well, what do we do when life rolls over and traps you? What if the plans and the dreams that you have for life just spin out of control and roll over? What do we do? Do we give up? Do we, and I've seen a lot of people do this, do we check out? Or do we do what most people do and dumb it down and say, I guess what the dreams that I had aren't going to materialize, so I'm going to have to scale it back? Our series that we're in right now is called Going Pro Coached Up, and it's about life and how life works. Going pro. That's <laughs> based on proverbs. Pro, pro, I know I had that idea years ago, and probably it's corny, but I just think about Proverbs as being the pro book. It's the pro playbook. It's the book of wisdom. It's the book about how life works from God's perspective. Now, I'm not talking about knowledge. I mean, I'm guessing that you know people who are very smart but can't think their way out of a paper bag. They may be very well educated. They may have, may have a lot of raw data, a lot of raw information, but they can't... Stri- they can't strategize life. And the thing about Proverbs is Proverbs is about wisdom. It's not about, and knowledge is important. Please don't get me wrong. I believe strongly in knowledge, but the problem with knowledge is a lot of times it doesn't come with how to use the knowledge. And wisdom tells us how to, how, how to make the most of the knowledge that we have. So when I talk about going pro, you're going to hear in some of these messages a lot of things from Proverbs. Now, today we're only looking at a couple, and most of it is from the second part of the title. The second part of the title is Coached Up. The reason why I call it Coached Up is we're going to look at the life of a particular person in the Bible who was an extraordinary success. And for me, I've always looked at him as a coach. You know, we know about life coaches. There are people that especially if they're on an executive trail or if they're on, they're on a trail to be successful in a particular endeavor, they might hire, might hire a life coach. Well, if there is a life coach in the Bible outside of Jesus, I think you have to look at this person. This guy's name is Joseph. And so the going pro, that's Proverbs. Coached up, that's the life of Joseph that we're going to explore. Now, there's a reason why I like to go back and give you these stories and the lessons that we draw from these characters, because the Bible says whatever was written before was written for our instruction, so that, and watch these two things, so that through our endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. In other words, two things have to come together for hope. Number one, we have to be willing to stay with God, and number two, Through the scriptures, we learn how God works. 
Now, I'm not a young minister anymore. I started preaching when I was 16. But very early in my ministry, God gave me a conviction that I would share with you. And it's simply this. Anytime there's a lot of ink devoted to a particular character in the Bible, I always think God wants us to pay especially close attention to that. I mean, there are people in the Bible like Moses and David and Esther. There's a lot of ink devoted to them. And so I really believe it's God's way of saying, slow down and pay attention. Well, the book that covers the most history in the Bible is the book of Genesis. It covers thousands of years, 50 chapters. And out of that 50-chapter book, 13 of the chapters from 37 to 50 are about Joseph. 38 is not about Joseph, but all the other chapters are. And when I think about the book that covers the most time in history, for God to give 13 chapters to this person, I really think it's God's way of saying, slow down and pay attention. Now, one more reason. When you look at the Bible, the Bible's very honest about its heroes. And oftentimes there are dark chapters in the lives of great people. David committed adultery. Moses got angry. Noah got drunk and blew up a big part of his life. But when you study the life of Joseph, you're not going to find any big blot on his character because Joseph basically lived a winner's life. And so because of that, I've looked at him as our coach for this series. And now, Coach Joseph has one of the most amazing lessons that you and I can ever learn. And here it is. Your heartbreaks may be your breakthroughs. One more time. Your heartbreaks may be your breakthroughs. Now, that statement is so amazingly backward to the way people think. It may take us a while to get there. So let's just back away from that for a moment. Let's take a moment just to look at breakthroughs. Now, breakthroughs are what we dream of. You know, if you're in a career right now, you would love to have a breakthrough. If you're in a marriage relationship and you're struggling, you would love to have a breakthrough moment. Breakthroughs are that moment when the baggage falls away and we can race down the field and nothing can stop us. I remember back in the day, I used to listen to a lot of football games on the radio, especially if I was driving somewhere and I couldn't watch it on television. And and back in those days, because people listened to games more on the radio, the broadcasters used to have a technique of trying to show a listener what was happening on the field that the listener obviously couldn't see. And I remember there was a technique that, that football broadcasters had to let the listener know that the running back or the receiver had broken into open field. And it would go something like this. Dorset is off the, to the right. He's at the 50. He's at the 45. He's at the 40. He's at the 30. And whenever you heard that, you could visualize the fact that the running back is running down the field and there's nothing between him and the end zone but yard markers. Well, I think that's what we dream of. We would like to do that broken field running. Well, the world, and I'm not talking about God, I'm talking about the world system without God. The world has a message for you. And it goes like this. Breakthroughs are possible, but it depends on one thing. Circumstances. And if you can get the circumstances right, like a combination lock, you can break through. And so life is all about manipulating those circumstances to achieve breakthrough. I live in a world of words as a communicator, and so I love looking at the etymology or the history of how a word is formed. 
I, I studied Greek when I was preparing for ministry because the New Testament was written in Greek, and I, I look at that language almost every day. And, and oftentimes, words have Greek etymology, and I can look at the word, and I know the Greek words, and I know how the word came about. And I do the same thing with Latin. But the words that we use in English, they have history. So let's talk about the word circumstance for a moment. I have a, you probably don't need me to say these things. Circum, which is the prefix, is the word that means around. Like circumference. There's another word. Stance <laughs> means stand. So what are, what are circumstances? It is, it is how the world stands around you. If you think about your circumstances today, the word's etymology does bear up. I mean, it's just how things stand around you. If we wanted to be practical, we could say it's the arrangement of events and people and resources in our world in a way that hopefully leads to breakout or breakthrough. Now, if you think about it, you have been coached by this world to believe that you have to have circumstances in your favor, that you have to manipulate those circumstances. You have to arrange the people in your life in a way that will be beneficial to you. You have to arrange the events in your life. You have to arrange the resources in your life. But if you're 50 years old, or 40, or 30, maybe even 20, you've already learned that this is a myth. It's like the Loch Ness Monster. People talk about it, but nobody's ever seen a life with all the circumstances manipulated just right. I mean, as I said, it's a powerful message. I mean, we've, we've watched as people will cheat, they will lie, they will, they will give up the things that are most important to them in the hopes that somehow they can manipulate circumstances, but we watch it as it never works because life just won't cooperate. And people get to be 20, 25, 30, 40, and when they tell their story, they say something that would be similar to this. Uh, I would have broken through, but circumstances never lined up right. I had this heartbreak and that heartbreak. Now, I would have broken through, but it just didn't work. Right now, it's very important for us to remember something very important. The greatest difference in this world is not where you went to college, what you do for a living, even your natural giftedness. What will determine your life is not knowing the right people or the books you read, all the stuff that we're told in the seminars. Those things are okay, they're important in their place, but that's not what determines your life. How many times have I sat in a seminar and I've heard, and I've got actually a personal friend who was probably the origin of this, who said, you know, your life is the same as it is in five years except for the people you meet and the books you read. That sounds very good. It's just completely wrong. Not that that's unimportant. It's just that's not what's going to determine your life. And that's not going to be where you're changed in five years. The greatest difference in this world is whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're a born-again man or woman of God. Because you see, if you're a born-again child of God, your identity, who you are as a person, means that this world is upside down to you, and as you probably discovered, you are upside down to this world. 
And so when the world tells you that your breakout depends on your ability to manage circumstances around you, that might be true if you weren't a daughter of God. That might be true if you weren't God's man in God's time doing God's work. Because at the moment you become God's child, your breakthroughs and my breakthroughs do not depend on circumstances. You remember the etymology? Circumstance. I was thinking about this as I was working on this message, and there's a certain static quality to that. In other words, circumstances are non, they're non-living, they're, they're dead, they're just stuff. But you see, your life doesn't depend on how things stand around you because those things are static and you can't change a whole lot of that. See, it's not how things stand, it's how God moves. See, our God is on the move. Circumstances stand, but God is on the move. So your future in the next five years is not on how things stand around you, it's in how God is moving in your life. Okay, let's talk about Joseph. If anybody ever had a breakthrough, it was Joseph. When he was 30 years old, he got a new job. You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody get a new job lately? Hey, congratulations. But your new job is not like Joseph's job. Joseph's job at 30, we used to talk about being upwardly mobile in the 90s. I would consider this upwardly mobile. When he's 30 years old, he gets a job running the world. Wow, Joseph is running the world as much as any human ever has or ever could, other other than Jesus. How'd that happen? Well, Egypt ruled the world, and one morning, the man who ruled Egypt, the Pharaoh, said to Joseph, you're running things, and we're on your agenda, and if somebody wants something, they have to ask you for it. I'd call that running the world. And somebody could say, well, Mark, you may be given to hyperbole. Is that really true? Look at this verse, Genesis 41, 55. Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. Well, that's running the world. So how does a person get a job like that? What university do you go to? What degree do you have to have? I mean, what right people did Joseph have to know to get a job where he ran the world at 30? Well, let's go to the tape. Let's go to instant replay. Let's look at the 13 years before this because when we look at what happened for those 13 years, we'll understand how he got the job. I mean, after all, how do you get a job running Egypt when you're not even an Egyptian? Joseph is a Jew. I mean, we're talking about the highest administrative position in the world, and Joseph doesn't come from an administrative family. He comes from an agricultural family, and they weren't even Jews. Well, that's amazing. And I sure don't want anybody to raise your hand on this one. <laughs> anybody know what it's like to grow up in a dysfunctional family? <laughs> you know that can set you back. Well, Joseph grew up in one of the most dysfunctional families in the history of the free world. I mean, his dad was the grandson of Abraham. He was one of what we call the patriarchs, but his dad was like a part-time God follower. <laughs> I mean, sometimes he followed God, but he was also very selfish, and he did stupid things that screwed up his life over and over and over again. So many times you read about his dad, and you want to just pull your hair out and say, God, how could you ever use anybody like that? And his dad was a kind of guy that would kind of cheat and 
line, do what it took to try to get it. His dad was the ultimate manage the circumstances kind of guy, and he was always blowing up his life. I mean, when his dad fell in love, he fell in love with a woman. He wanted to marry her. And his father-in-law was a cheater as well. And the father-in-law said, well, if you work for me for seven years, I'll give you this woman that you love so much. And she was really beautiful. Jonathan talked about this the other day. Rachel means, you know, tender-eyed. It means beautiful. Her older sister had a name that means cow. And I don't know how you give a girl. The Bible just simply says, and this is what the Hebrew means, no sparkle. So, you know, Jacob worked seven years for the beautiful woman, and, the, and in the darkness, the, you know, the father-in-law brought his wife to him, and of course, in the dark, he didn't know, and he wakes up the next morning, and he's married to the other sister, and then his father-in-law said, well, if you work for me seven more years, I'll give you the woman that you want, and that just led to all kinds of dysfunction in the family. And the woman who wasn't beautiful was able to have a whole bunch of kids, and the woman that, Joseph, that Jacob loved couldn't have kids until she finally had Joseph, our guy. Well, at that moment, Jacob just put all of his energy into Joseph and made the older brothers feel like they were nothing. And you can imagine what that did. If any of you have ever been in a family where one particular sibling was favored and others were not, you know, it's just so unimaginably toxic. And on top of that, Jacob did two things that just made Joseph's world so much harder. Maybe we'll talk about this next week, so I won't talk about it much now. But he put, his, he put Joseph, who was one of the youngest of the brothers, in charge of all of his older brothers. And he has to be hall monitor for brothers who hate him. And then on top of that, in order to set Joseph apart from the other brothers, his dad gave him what the Bible calls a coat of many colors. It just simply means the kind of garment that royalty wore. So put yourself in Joseph's place. He's walking around wearing this beautiful garment, and his brothers already hate him. And on top of that, the dad puts him in charge of them. And one day, his older brothers were like in a distant area with their flocks, and Jacob said to Joseph, I want you to go down to where your brothers are and give me a report on them. I should also have told you that Joseph was given the ability to know about dreams, and God had given him some dreams, and we'll talk about this next week. But Joseph told his brothers, I had a dream, and in my dream, you guys were all working for me. Well, if they hated him before, they really hate him now. So now here comes Joseph wearing this coat that royalty wears, and the brothers see him coming, and they said to each other, we're going to take our dreams, his dreams, into our hands, and we're going to fix his dreams. Let me ask you a question. You ever have anybody in your life hate you so much that it's like they set out in their mission to make your dreams not come true? And they see Joseph coming and they said, you know what? Let's just kill him. Let's whack him. <laughs> let's see what will happen to his dreams. You talk about some cold-hearted people. I mean, they said, let's kill him. And one of the brothers said, hey, there's no money in that. Let's sell him. And there were some traders who, who had come by. They were, they were slave traders. And the brothers take Joseph and throw him. And, and, and we will read later on that Joseph pleaded and begged them not to sell him, but they sold him, if memory starts correct, for what, 20 pieces of silver? And now Joseph is taken down to Egypt, and he doesn't know the language, he doesn't know the culture, he's just a slave. He comes into Egypt as, as the lowest person, and he winds up getting sold, and there's no modern equivalent for it, but I guess you could say he got sold to the person who would be like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He just sold, got sold to the biggest military person in Egypt, over all the military. 
And this guy was very wealthy. He had an enormous estate. He must have had because one of the things on his estate was a prison. And so Joseph gets sold as the lowest person in, on the ranks among the slaves. And all the time, Joseph is getting told, you can't touch that, you can't do that. Don't, don't look at that pool with the shimmering blue water there. That's not for you. You can't do that. Don't eat that. That's not for you. But as you've already heard Jonathan say, the Lord was with Joseph. And, and people just begin to notice. I mean, those who were managing the slaves begin to notice that, man, you know, you turn something over to that kid, it just gets done. And you don't have to check on him. And he just like brings his A game no matter what you ask him. So he starts getting promoted, promoted, promoted to the ranks of the slaves. Till finally he gets the attention of the guy who owns everything. And he looks at Joseph and is like, everything this kid touches works. And at one point he says, you know what? I'm just going to put you over my entire estate. Well... We can say, okay, we sort of see the trail. He is upwardly mobile. Maybe that's how he's going to get to the place of running the world. Hold on. Potiphar, the guy who owns everything, is married to arm candy. And the Bible simply says Joseph was really good looking, and he was, he was chiseled. <laughs> and so Potiphar's wife starts looking at Joseph, going to have a little sky rockets in the afternoon. And she tries to seduce Joseph. Well, the thing about it is, and we'll see this, and I can't wait to teach some of these things coming up the next couple of weeks. But, but Joseph understood the one thing he could not do was flip God off. I mean, he was holding God, he was holding this rope of God's dreams, and he's like, I cannot flip God off here. But instead of it going well in the near term, it didn't go well because she tried to grab him and grabbed his robe, and Joseph just ran away, but now she had show and tell. And so when her husband came home that afternoon, she said he tried to rape her. And after all, she had his coat. Somebody's always trying to take Joseph's coat. And Joseph, at the end of the day, is wearing an orange jumpsuit. He's in prison. And everybody that looks at him believes that he tried to sexually assault the woman, the wife. Or the man he worked for. Now, there's a lot of, I don't know about Joseph's life. I guess when we get to heaven, the details will get fit in, but I, fit it in. But I, I really try to look at this and, and, and make sense of it. It appears to me, if I have the numbers right, that Joseph was in prison. Now, again, we're talking about at 30, him running the world. He was in prison from the time he was 20 to the time he was 30. Ten years. Ten years on a trumped-up sexual assault charge. That's a heartbreak. But when Joseph is in prison, God is with him. And so the next thing you know, the keeper of the prison said, Joseph, you're running things down here. I know you're still wearing an orange jumpsuit, but you're just in charge. Which means that Joseph met all the new prisoners who came in. One day, a couple of new prisoners came in. High officials in the government. I mean, when we read about... When we read about the guy in charge of food service and the guy in charge of wine being in the prison, we think of that in modern Western terms. But you have to realize that potentates in those days were worried desperately about being poisoned. So if you were in charge of all the food and you were in charge of all the wine, you had to be an extremely trustworthy person. But Pharaoh came to believe that one of them had tried to kill him. And he didn't know which one it was, so he just put them both in a brown paper bag and threw them in prison and decided to figure it out later. But when they're in prison, they both have dreams. And I think I shared with you, Joseph 
has the ability to interpret dreams. And so they both tell Joseph their dreams, and Joseph said to Mr. Food Service Guy, I have bad news for you. Your dream means that in three days, you're going to get executed. And to the guy in charge of all the wine, he said, I got really, really good news for you. In three days, you're going to get your job back. And in three days, it happened just like that. Food service guy, he was executed. Wine guy, got his job back. And so while the wine guy's taking off his orange jumpsuit and putting his Armani back on, Joseph says to him, hey, when you get down to the palace, would you tell the Pharaoh that I'm down here and I'm innocent on this trumped up rape charge? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Man, the moment I get back there, I'm going to tell Pharaoh there's an innocent guy down in the prison. Are you kidding me? He just barely got out with his neck. The last thing he's going to do is say to his boss who ran the world, there's a guy down there in the jail who says he's innocent. They all say that. He goes back to the prison and he summarily, or goes back to the palace and summarily forgets Joseph. I've done so many series on Joseph in all the years, the 36 years I've been at New Spring. I have to tell you, I believe the hardest time, the biggest heartbreak in Joseph's life, in spite of all the things that had happened before, was the last two years he was in prison of being forgotten. Every day, Joseph looked at that prison door, and he waited for somebody to come and get him out. And it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. Who am I talking to right now? You've waited, and you've waited, and you've waited. I think that was the biggest heartbreak of all. But then the Pharaoh had a dream. And it was a weird dream. I mean, not just like the kind we have sometimes. I mean, Pharaoh believed and understood that this dream had something to do with the future. And and honestly, it was a weird dream. I mean, there were two dreams. I'll just tell you about one of them. Pharaoh's like watching seven fat cows beside the river. And all of a sudden, seven really, really skinny, lean, scrawny cows come out of the river and they eat the fat cows. I do remember that. You watch seven skinny cows chew up seven fat cows and swallow them whole. You do remember that. So Pharaoh calls in all his intelligentsia, all the smart people, you know, and he's like, tell me the meaning of my dream. They say, sir, we don't know. I mean, we don't understand that kind of thing. I mean, the only way to have that kind of dream is either get a message from God or eat too much pizza before bedtime, but we don't know. And about that time, the guy in charge of wine said, I could have had a V8 down there in the prison There is a guy who can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh says, get him out here. And I love how the Bible describes Joseph changing his appearance to appear before Pharaoh because now he's taken off the orange jumpsuit. And he's not an Egyptian, but he's learned the culture by now. So he shaves his head. You know, he's got his head shaved and he's dressed like an Egyptian. He's talking like an Egyptian, walking like an Egyptian. (laughs) Just wanted to see who was listening to music in the 80s. And Joseph comes out there and Pharaoh says, I've been told you can interpret dreams. And Joseph said, tell me your dream. And Joseph said, I know what that dream means. I have a God in heaven who can interpret dreams. And he said, what it means is you're going to have seven very great prosperous years. Bumper crops are going to grow so much. Nobody can believe how much is being grown in Egypt. And then on the tail of that, you're going to have seven very lean years. And he said, here's the thing you have to do. You have to prepare for the future by managing those prosperous years well so that in the lean years, people don't starve to death. I wish our government officials knew about that today. (laughs) I never get into politics, but I do think about this every time I do Joseph's story. 
And he said, I'm going to tell you something. You need some whiz, bang, top level administrator to manage this whole process. And the Pharaoh looked around and said, well, the smartest guy in the room is this guy right here. And he said, you're hired. You're running the world. And that's how a person gets this job at the age of 30. Work with me. The world that you and I are, I'm not talking about the God world. I'm talking about the world system that you're in, you and I are in. How would the world write that headline? Joseph rises above his heartbreaks. How does that make you feel? When you read some story or you go to some conference and that's the story. This person rose above their heartbreaks. I don't think most people understand how that can sting. Because some of you hear that and you're like, I don't think I can rise. I don't think I have the resources to rise above my heartbreaks. Well, that's okay because that's not the headline here. Let's put an X through it. Try again. The world, not God, the world. Joseph succeeds in spite of his heartbreaks. That's not what we have here. What is God's headline? Joseph's heartbreaks were his breakthroughs. Like rungs on a ladder, his heartbreaks were necessary. I've taught this story so many times through the years. I got to tell you, one of the things I love so much in teaching this story is I love to look at Joseph when he's 30 and just see the success that he had. I love to see him with his beautiful wife, Potiphar. I love to see him in the delivery room when Manasseh is born and Ephraim is born. We'll talk about that later. I love to see him as he's like bringing his brothers and his dad back and getting them all condos with swimming pools in Egypt. And I love to look at that part of his life and I watch him as, I watch him as he keeps the world from starving to death with this brilliant God-ordained plan. And I recognize, New Spring, he doesn't get there without his heartbreaks. If his brothers don't hate him, they don't sell him. If they don't sell him as a slave, he doesn't get to Egypt. If he doesn't wind up in Potiphar's house, he doesn't learn how Egypt works. If he's not accused of rape, he doesn't go to jail. And if he doesn't go to jail, he's not there when Pharaoh's administrators are there with their dreams. And if he doesn't get forgotten for two years, the timing is not right. And Pharaoh could care less that his wine taster says there's a guy down in the jail who says he's innocent. You cannot tell this story without a trail of heartbreaks. Okay, enough about Joseph. Let's go to a sensitive place. Let's talk about you and me. Like me, sitting upside down in my car, waiting for the fire department to get me out. What if life has put you there and your circumstances are not good? Is it possible that the heartbreaks you feel right now could actually be your breakthroughs? And if so, you guys know I'm a practical person. I don't blow sunshine at you without a basis. How is it true? How does it work? I mean that. Let me start over again. Just make sure we understand the question. Is it possible as a daughter of God, as a son of God, 
Is it possible that your heartbreaks could actually be your breakthroughs? Give you four things and we'll go home or wherever we're going when we leave. It's true, number one, because when our hearts are broken, God comes near. In Psalm 34, verse 18, the Bible said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Let's just go back to that first line. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Why? I don't know. I just know he is. There's something about when our heart breaks, the God of creation comes close. And there are some of you who could stand right now and give testimony if I opened it up. And you could say things like, I went through something I would have never chosen. And I wouldn't go through it again if you gave me all the money in the world. But you know, when I went through that, at my darkest time, I, knew, I met God like I'd never met him before. Why does God come close when our heart breaks? I really do not know. Maybe it's because we look to him then. Maybe it's because we quit trusting in the circumstances and the way things stand around us. But it could just be simpler than that. It could be that God comes close because when our heart breaks, his heart breaks. I feel my age sometimes, not often, but... I feel my age sometimes when I think about songs that I sang when I was a kid in church. I love the songs we sing today, but every once in a while, something I sang when I was a little kid will come back to me. And when I was working on this sermon, I thought about a song that I used to sing when I was a kid that asked the question that some of you may be asking today. Does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when my heart is hurt too deeply for fun or song? And the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares in my favorite line of the song. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Is it possible that your heartbreak could be your breakthrough? Yeah, it's true because when your heart's broken, God comes close. How can it be true? It's true because God can make it happen. Sometimes God does things just because he can. I, mean, I, I say this to Mary Alice, it's just God being God. I mean, he does, I mean, he doesn't always do these things. He doesn't always heal everybody. I mean, obviously all of us are going to go to heaven someday by death unless Jesus comes. But just every once in a while, God just does something because he can do it. <laughs> I think about the things that God does that seem miraculous to me. And one of the greatest miracles is God says that when I stand before the judgment in heaven, that I'm going to be innocent. Me? Innocent? I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. I have a rap sheet a mile long. How in the world is God going to have me be innocent in his presence? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 explains. This is God will make it happen. I mean, God just does things sometimes because he can. I think it's time for us now just to stop and give him glory in our hearts. Our God turns heartbreaks into breakthroughs because he, he, he can. He can do it. He opens seas and people walk through on dry land because he can. I mean, he shuts the mouths of Daniel's lions simply because he can. 
He stops the fire's damage on three men who embody political correctness just because he can. He brings the Messiah into the world without a human father simply because he can. I mean, the way the angel explained it to Mary in Luke 137 is for nothing is impossible with God. And I believe there are times when God turns our heartbreaks into breakthroughs just because he can. He can do it. Number three. You remember a few moments ago I said the biggest difference in the world is if you're a born-again child of God? It has to do with your identity as God's faithful child. Let, let, me, let me set this up. I had the greatest parents in the world. There are things that are true in Mark Hoover's life because he was born to Winfred and Edith Hoover. And there have been so many things in my life that I've just had as a resource. Not financial, my parents were not well-to-do, but there's so many important spiritual and life qualities that I have. I, I sort of in, inherited it. it was, it's my heritage. There are just certain things that are true in my life because I was born into the Hoover family. And even though my parents are both in heaven right now, I still think every day I have that because of my dad. It's part of my heritage. Okay? Got that? Now watch this. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prevail or prosper. Now, quickly, as you saw in Joseph's life, it doesn't mean that no weapon will be formed against you. God just says no weapon that is formed against you will prevail. And then look at this line in the middle of the sentence. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is for me. So if you're God's child, see, you got an inheritance. You have a heritage that belongs to the servants of God. The same God who got Daniel out of, out of the lion's den is your God. The same God who helped Esther when the whole Jewish race was going to be wiped out. The same God who helped Esther will help you. The same God who did all these marvelous things in the Bible, open seas and, and defeated enemies, that is your God. May I have a few extra minutes right now? Because I want to give you, when God gave this to me, this is the one that I love the most. This is number four. Is it possible that your heartbreaks could be your breakthroughs? It's true, number four, because God can see in the dark. This is still not maybe an easy message for you. See, for some of us, we're not going through a heartbreak right now. This is theoretical. But for some of you, you're going through a heartbreak, and it's very real. And one reason why you may still be having a problem with this message is you're like, I don't see how anything good can come out of this. It works because God can see in the dark. See, when we're going through the heartbreak, I mean, go back to Joseph's life when he's sold and being dragged away as a slave, when he's lied about, when he's in prison. It's dark. He can't see the future. Some of you new, new Springers who were here last year, you remember I did a series called Song for the Anxious Mind. And it was in Psalm 139. And I remember as I was teaching through that, there was one line I never knew quite what to do with. And I think it's because God wanted it this week. In Psalm 139, 12, the Bible says to you, the light shines as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. When you're going through the dark night of your heartbreak and you can't see, you need to know God can see. 
I'm going to share a story with you, and I feel bad about it because I've told you so many times. That's what old people do. They just repeat themselves, tell stories. <laughs> you guys know what this is. This is the box that we give away to anyone who accepts Christ. And there's some wonderful things in it. There's like a, a New Spring Bible, and there's a journal, a nice journal with a pen, but also in it, there's a little book. And I wrote it. And it's sort of interesting because I've been asked to write it for a long time. I mean, Mary Alice and others that ministered here at New Spring said, Mark, would you just write a book about salvation for people who accept Christ? And I have ADD and OCD and a bunch of letters that haven't been diagnosed yet. <laughs> and I never sit still long enough to write a book. And Mary Alice would say, Mark, you've written hundreds of books in your sermon series, you know. You, 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 you should know that well over 100,000 people have read this book right after they trusted Christ, or maybe right before. We hear so many stories from it. It wasn't written to be a book. I know I've told you this story before. But back at the end of 2010, just something snapped in me. And the doctors who tried to diagnose it, they called it emotional exhaustion. I'd had an emotional disorder for years, an anxiety disorder that I tried to outpace and run. And for all of you who know, if you ever have an emotional disorder, you know you can only outrun it for so long. And they said that my body had fired the last adrenaline it had, and I'm an adrenaline junkie. All I know is I'd finished the second service on Saturday evening the week after Thanksgiving in 2010, and somewhere on the way home, I mean, I, when I got in my car to leave, I thought everything was fine. And I got on 13th Street, somewhere between 143rd and 159th, and just something snapped inside of me. I don't know, to this day, I don't know what happened. I've, I've taught on this to Christian leaders. I've taught on it to corporate executives. And I know what happened to me, but I don't know why. All of a sudden, I became a very different person. Yeah, I'm used to being full of energy. I mean, when I walk into a room, I'm just like pumped. You know? And my staff was used to that. All of a sudden, I didn't have that energy. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. And Mary Alice is no means, I said, from high school days. And when I got to the place when I didn't want to listen to music, Mary Alice knew something was very wrong with me. You know, for those of you who are strong people, you know that... Um, one of the problems of being strong is that you can manage it for a long time, which means you typically get... I have a friend who, back in the days when four-by-fours were getting popular, he said the great thing about a four-wheel drive is you can get stuck a lot further out. <laughs> and sometimes that's the problem of being a strong person. And for three weeks, I managed to keep going, and I preached a series that some will say is one of the greatest series I ever preached, but for 10 years, I couldn't stand to watch the sermons because I knew what was going on on the other side of these eyes. And like a battery-operated device, I was just shutting down little by little. And I finally got to the place where I was almost catatonic, and I will never be able to appropriately be grateful to all the people who ministered to me. Our, our board here at the church was so kind to me. They just said to Mary Alice, we've got to get Mark someplace where there's sunshine. It was the darkest part of the year. They said, we've got to get Mark where there's sunshine. And whatever, they just basically said, here's a blank check. Whatever help Mark needs. And I remember asking Mary Alice, they had put us on this beautiful condo in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
And I remember asking Mary Alice, why is everybody being so good to me? Because I felt like I'd failed everybody. And Mary Alice said, well, Mark, they said you've been pouring into their lives at the time for 25 years. They want to pour into you. I'd like to tell you that while we were out in Arizona, I got better, but I didn't. I got worse and worse and worse. (laughs) I never wanted to go back to Phoenix. It's kind of interesting. I had to go back in February because I was doing a pastor's conference. And Mary Alice and I went back to the condo where we were staying, just walked around for a little while. But the night I'll never forget, or the day I'll never forget, was New Year's Eve 2010, last year, the last day of the year. It was the lowest I ever was. And if you've ever been through anything like that, and for a lot of you, it's like, this is just foreign language, but if you've ever been through anything like that, what, the, what happens at that moment is you lose everything that you know for sure because nothing feels certain anymore. And I sat on that couch and I thought to myself, I don't know anything anymore. I was so bad. I've never told this before. Leaders here in our church, I asked them, I said, have you ever seen any evidence of God in my life? And I sat on that couch and I began to type. And I wasn't typing a book. I wasn't typing a sermon. I was just typing. And the one thing I knew is I knew that Jesus saves. And I began to type everything I knew about salvation And that became this book. I've read this book many times since then. And you know what? I couldn't write this book today. This book was written in desperation. This book was written by a person who was holding on to the last rope from heaven. Well, God brought me out. And I was back by the middle of January. You know what series I was preaching? It was the first going pro. And in time, Mary Alice said, hey, Mark, you know what you wrote that day about salvation? You know, maybe that would work out to be a book. And this is the book that well over 100,000 people have read right after they accepted Christ. You remember some time ago we got into giving Bibles to prisoners? This started with one Bible to one prisoner. Now I think there have been like 100,000 Bibles that we've given to prisoners in so many different places. But we also started giving out the book. I remember a chaplain of a woman's prison in Texas contacted us and said, thank you for the Bibles, but we really appreciate the books. He said, the books have kind of started a revival. And he said, we have 33 women who have accepted Christ after reading the book, and we're going to set up a baptistry. in the yard of the prison. On that last day of 2010, when I wrote that, all I could see was darkness. But God could see 33 women lined up to be baptized in an East Texas prison. God can see in the dark. You can't. All you can see is your broken heart. But you know what? You're God's daughter. And like me, you may not know a lot of things. There may be a lot of things you've lost that you didn't know for sure. But you know one thing. You know that you have been saved by the blood of Christ. And you're God's daughter. And that may be the last rope that you're holding on to. But hold on to it. Because your heartbreak may be your breakthrough.
and God can see in the dark. How can I preach this message without saying, if you've never invited Jesus Christ to come into your life, get in on this so this will be your family inheritance. You say, Mark, are you asking me to join your church? Nope, won't do it. You say, you're asking me to get, do something, do, turn over a new leaf? I won't do it either. It's a gift. And the only way to get it is a gift. We're flawed, broken people. We're sinners. But God loved us very much. And he put his son into the world, Jesus. He lived the life that you and I can't live. And then he laid it down on a Roman cross. And as he hung there for six hours, crucified, the way God looked at it, he paid for everything you and I have ever done wrong. And scripture says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, I can do that. I can't undo my past. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes, but I can call out to God and ask for Jesus to be my savior. And if you want to do that today, you can. We'll close the service with it. Okay, I'll pray a prayer. And if you want to repeat it, you don't have to pray it out loud. Just pray it in your heart. If you want to pray out loud you, or, or in silent, you can do it. Here we go. I'm real short. Just I'll say these sentences. And if you want to say them, if you mean them, God will hear you. Dear God, I am a sinner. I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me. And make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with me, God heard. Now, here's the deal. Now I want to offer you the box, okay? And the Bible and then the book I wrote and the journal is in there. And, and it's real easy to get it. We have no agenda except to take your first step with you walking with God. All you got to do, if you want to have them ready for you to get back out there, just take your, take, take your phone out and text the word PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000. And when you get back to any of those blue info centers, they'll have this ready for you. And I promise you, they won't hassle you, stalk you, ask for your routing number. They just want to give this to you. And if you don't have your phone, just go back and say, I pray with Mark. That works well too. See you soon. God bless. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.